we talked about becoming the bride of Christ, and, and we studied this amazing symbolism that happens when, when we become part of the body of Christ. And, and usually what happens, as you know, is when you become someone's wife, your name changes. Um, I'm just going to be totally candid with you and tell you that this session, maybe out of all the ones that I'm going to be doing with you all, is the one that I've dreaded the most. Um, I've got tissues tucked under my leg. Um, because this is just a hard topic for me. It's something that I don't share a lot about publicly, but I thought that this was a really important place for me to do it. And so I'm just gonna start by telling you this. Uh, my maiden name is Batiata. I hardly ever say that uh, for a lot of reasons. One, because for my entire life, no one could pronounce it, or they would say Batiata, which then, of course, in fifth grade sounded a lot like body odor, and so that might be funny. <laughs> But more than just these kind of like childhood pranks, it, it held to me this picture of who I used to be before I knew God. It was all the things that I really wanted to forget about myself. It was what I considered baggage. And so um, just within the past few months, I took a trip with my family, with my daughters, and with my husband, and we went back to Cincinnati. We went back to this building that I hadn't gone to in years where I went to high school. And I got out of the car by myself, and I walked up to the front doors of the school. And they were locked. But I pushed my face up against the glass, and I looked in, and I saw this long hallway. and I despised who I remembered having been in this hallways. And I stood there for just a few minutes looking and regretting and feeling shame. And then after just a little bit, I started to step away because in my mind I just needed to take a couple steps and I would eventually get back to my car where my sweet little girls were and my husband was and sort of shake this off. And I got just a few steps away from the door and for whatever reason the Lord just stopped me. And I looked back into the glass and all of a sudden what I saw was my reflection. Now. Who I am now. And I caught that outline, just such a simple thing, my skirt in a window and my face. And the Lord said to me so clearly, you're not who you used to be. This is who I see now. You don't have to look down those hallways anymore. You're a new creation. He changed my name.
The first one is Abraham. And as you read, God changes his name from Abram, which means noble father, to Abraham, meaning father of many. And the reason he does this is to signify, you are becoming the person who I have made you. Your identity is in this. I will keep the promise that I have made to you. And then we see him change the name of Abram's wife, and it comes from Sarai, and it turns to Sarah. And basically, even though it seems like a subtle difference, Sarai means my princess, which sort of is thought of as like the princess of one person. And then it becomes Sarah, which means princess, but princess to many. And again, the idea was the same. I am going to keep my promise to you, and this is who you're going to be. And then Jacob. I love the story of Jacob. I always have. And I want to point something out here because I think a lot of times when we're reading scripture, we, we miss some of the patterns that God has put in there. And they're important for us to pay attention to because they continue on throughout the entire thing. And what we see here is Sarah, who hadn't necessarily believed the promise of God, and had sort of like stepped in and decided she needed to take things into her own hands manipulated it a little bit. And after that hiccup, eventually had the child that God had promised. That child grew up and then had Jacob. Jacob is a manipulator himself. He's born that way. His name means heel grabber. From the very beginning, we see him vying for the position of being first and, and trying to be known. He's lived his entire existence this way. And I'm just gonna be totally honest with you. I'm so glad that there are Jacobs in the Bible. Because I think if I were to read it, I would think, well, maybe I'm the only one who does this. Maybe everyone else is righteous and they do things perfectly. But no, there are people like Jacob who you look at and you think, okay, I'm a Jacob. Maybe there have been times in your own life that you've manipulated things or, or you've twisted them, even lied to get accolades, to get to get something that you wanted, to, to change the situation or, or make people see you differently. I mean, I haven't, but maybe you have. <laughs> Obviously, I'm totally kidding. <laughs> I think in some ways I've been in Jacob since the day I was born too. And so when I read his story, I'm just so moved by it. He escapes from this place where he has manipulated his father, taken advantage of him, and he flees. And he's running. And in the dark of night, all of a sudden, all of these things that he has fought his entire life, they're about to come to a head. In other words, the house of cards is about to fall. And there in this place, in the middle of the night, he meets a stranger an angel of God, and he wrestles him. Can you imagine? He wrestles him. I think at this point he had nothing to lose. And so we're going to read right now about that incident. In Genesis 32, 25, it says this, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, God said to him, what is your name? 
And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men, and you have prevailed. What is behind this? Why did he ask him what his name was? Because he knows what Jacob thinks of himself. He knows what Jacob's reputation is. He knows who he has been, and he is asking him to answer the question, who do you think you are? What is your identity up until this point? And Jacob basically says, I'm that guy. I'm the one who has grabbed at heels since the day I was born. I'm the one who's manipulated everything I can get my hands on. I'm that guy. I'm guilty. And God says to him, not anymore. Your new name is Israel. You've prevailed. He walked away with a limp. He walked away different because of that encounter. Don't miss the beauty of this story in your own life. There are a couple things that I want to point out. Notice that Jacob said to him, I am not letting go of you until you bless me. He physically wrestled with God. That, that word, when we look back and we study the original language, what it means isn't just to wrestle. It means to grapple. It actually means to get dusty with. He exhausts himself. Are we willing to do that? Are we, are we willing to, to get messy? To dig deep into this, to wrestle through what we've been. Because we know that on the other side of this match, we come out a better person. And not only that, but do you see that what he's essentially saying right here is, what I know of you is enough to tell me that you can change me, that I can be a different person on the other side of this night. And I want to ask you, do you believe in a God like that? Do you believe that God is actually able to change you that way? Sometimes I struggle with it. Sometimes when I look down those old hallways, I wonder if I'm ever really going to be different. And honestly, this guilt thing, this shame thing, this fear of getting what I deserved, uh, it started really early in life for me. Every year, Christmas time is one of those times that I look forward to and also sort of dread it because what it meant was I was being watched and I was being evaluated and I might or might not get some great prize. And so I would listen to these songs. You know, Santa is watching you. He's watching you no matter what you're doing which is a little creepy, to be honest. <laughs> but outside of that, it's really intimidating to feel like you have to be on all the time, and what if you miss the mark? And so Christmas morning rolled around. I was an elementary age student, and I sat in my bed. <laughs> and from my bed, I looked down this long hallway, and I knew that what was on the other side of that hallway was the Christmas tree and was the rest of my family waiting for me to come out to celebrate Christmas with them, but I knew something that they didn't. First of all, I knew that I had pushed my sister down the stairs and I had blamed my dog, Sparky. That was a fact. <laughs> and I knew that when I got outside and I got to my stocking and everyone else was celebrating all the amazing things they got, mine would be filled with coal. And so I wouldn't get out of bed. 
I was physically frozen in my bed. And my sweet father came walking down the hall and I watched his feet come into my room. And he said, Angela, come out. You're not gonna believe it, Santa came. And there are all these incredible things there waiting for you. And I didn't believe him. And I sat and sat until finally he picked me up. And he put me over his shoulder. And he walked down that long hallway and my eyes were still on my room. But as we walked and got closer and closer and closer, he finally said, look. And I turned my head. And here was this room full of things that I knew I didn't deserve. Pom-poms, Barbie dolls, <laughs> presents wrapped up just waiting for me to unwrap. Truth be told, I, I probably deserved the coal. I mean, we all deserve the coal. But what I hadn't banked on that morning, and, and maybe what I don't bank on every single day of my life, is a loving father who has chosen to give me what I don't deserve because of his great and inexplicable affection. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Matthew Henry explains this in his commentary. It says that this white stone means absolution from the guilt of sin, alluding to an ancient custom where one would give a white stone to those acquitted on trial and a black stone to those who had been condemned. Essentially, this, this white stone that we hear about in Revelation is God declaring our innocence over us. He's given us a new name. We've been absolved from sin. And because of that, we don't have to live lives where our faces are pressed up against glass and we are looking down the hallways at things that we regret and all the things that we feel shame over. We don't have to live lives where we're looking down hallways the other way going, I don't know what's waiting for me on the other side and I'm afraid that when I get out there, it's going to be something awful. Because what he has said quite simply is this, you're not who you were. And something amazing is waiting for you when you come to be with me. We can't do that in and of ourselves. We cannot change our names. We can't change our identities. But he's done that for us. And as a result, all we can do is take a breath, thank the God who has renamed us, and live every single day of our lives wrestling for the blessing that only he can give.
Brian, my husband, likes to tell me where I'm gifted and where my strengths are. And he was just informing me the other day that I should take a strength finder test. However, he knows where my strengths are. So he, he proceeded to tell me. And my, one of my strengths is responsibility, my sense of responsibility. I have a sense of responsibility, and he's right in this, to take care of people, to make sure I'm speaking the right words, to make sure I'm doing the right things, to make sure everybody around me is just as they need to be. That's a huge burden. And so what happens in my life with me, if I could be quite honest with you, is I fail a lot. <laughs> because if I, am, if I truly feel very responsible that my household is happy and that everything's going as well and everyone has what they need, I can't do it. And I struggle. I struggle with my joy. I struggle with feeling enough. And I don't know if you struggle with that, but I do, and especially since I have this strength and responsibility. And so the beauty of studying what we studied this week was, you know, in the scriptures it says in Leviticus and in, in 1 Peter, be holy for I am holy. How in the world can I be holy? That means blameless. That means perfect. But here's the beauty, and that's what we're studying here in Seamless, is what the gospel is, is that God says, be holy, for I am holy. Why? It's because of the Father that we studied last week, because he wants to dwell with us. Remember we talked about that? And the only way to dwell with our perfect God, Father, is to be holy. But the beautiful thing is that it's God that has the responsibility and has taken the responsibility to make me holy. See, I can be holy because of Christ, which means I can dwell with him, and that means he is enough when I'm not. And that's a beautiful picture. And so what spoke to me this, this week as I was studying was the Abrahamic covenant, because this is where God makes this promise, so that when I struggle with my failure and my responsibility, he reminds me, Angela, it's not you I'm enough. He sees me through his, he sees me beautifully as he created me, where no one else can see me that way. You know how hard I try. He can. He sees me that way. And so open to Genesis 15. I have to share this, this covenant with you. I'm going to read Genesis 15, 1 to 7, and then I'm going to flip to chapter 17 and read 1 to 8. So Genesis 15, 1 to 7 says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and the number of stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Now flip over to 17, and I'm going to read 1 to 8. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. 
that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of na nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you father of the multitude of nations. Okay, so, so listen, what two promises does God make Abraham here? Huh? The land, and what else? The, yeah, descendants, right? And the, listen, his descendants, he said, shall be kings. So he has, through his descendants comes Christ, who is going to fulfill making us holy, the promise to be, um, to be holy with him. What did he ask of Abram? To be blameless. How is that even possible? Well, let's read further. Look at 15, 8 to 12. Flip back to 15. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring, a, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against each other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcass, Adam, I mean Abram drove them away. And then 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. Now, a covenant, let me give you an example of a covenant. Let's, and this is how it used to be back in the day. When you had a wedding and weddings were arranged, the two fathers would get together. And the fathers would say basically this, let it be done unto me as it has been done unto these animals if my son or daughter doesn't keep his or her end of the covenant, which meant, which meant if I'm the father of this son, if your daughter doesn't keep the end, then death to you. That's what it means. So they would cut the animals in half, and one father would walk through the blood this way, and then the, and the other father would walk through the blood this way, saying, if my son or my daughter doesn't fulfill this, then, then I can take your life. That was the covenant of the day. So with God and Abram, we have a greater and lesser covenant, which means this, basically. It means if you have a, if someone in the covenant is greater than the other, then that means they have the authority and the means to make the other person have the consequence. Sorry, I'm losing my voice. If they don't follow through. So God, if we li don't live blamelessly, he has the right to, to take our life. We must die. That is the greater and the lesser covenant. Now, let's look at, we talked about trying to look at who God is in the story. Instead of looking at Abraham, who is God in this story to us? Do you see anything about who God is in this? Just yell it out if you see something. Okay, so he made covenant and he is a covenant keeper. He, God is promise keeper. How do we know this? He fulfilled, which means God walked through. When you see the torch in the flaming pot, it says one, the flaming pot went one way, and then did Abraham walk through it? No, God put him in a deep sleep because he knew he was going to carry through both ends of the covenant. You see that picture? God was making that promise there knowing 
No way can Abraham be blameless in all the generations. He knows that. So he kept the promise. He said, I am making the promise and I'm going to keep your end of the bargain. He walks through twice and leaves Abraham out of it. So we know that God is promise keeper. And we're going to see that thread through the scriptures all the way through the Messiah and the fulfillment of the prophecies. And then he, what else is he? He's a peacemaker. How is he a peacemaker in this? Well, there's always tension between the two people making the covenant. And how are we going to keep our end of the bargain? Well, God is the peacemaker. He provided peace and that he totally took that tension away. That tension that I feel often with my responsibility, responsibility level, I have to learn to, to go like this and pray and let God help me and let him take that tension from me like he does in, the, in this picture of the covenant. He took the tension away from Abraham because he, he did his part. God made his promise and he did Abraham's part of being blameless. So he is promise keeper. He is peacemaker. He is love. You see that about God in this? God is love. What a beautiful picture of love. I know it's bloody, walking through dead animals and all that stuff. But if you can get beyond the blood of the matter, the blood sacrifice, which is necessary to dwell with God because of sin, he is love because he takes our burden from us and makes us blameless takes that responsibility. Where we aren't enough, he is enough. So we have promise keeper, he's peacemaker, and he is love, and he is redeemer. You see, he is a, a God who desires redemption. He created us in the garden. We studied about that. And then he was broken for us. Where are you? He grieved not being able to dwell with us anymore, but he's redeemer. He, he craves redemption, and he makes that possible, and he's showing that here in his covenant with Abraham. And we're going to see how he carries that through, through generation and through different patriarchs and through kings and through judges and priests, and ultimately to the king of kings, to the most high priest from the Lord of lords in Jesus Christ. And so he's showing us that picture. And what a beautiful picture, and what a neat reminder that I needed this week where I'm not enough and that God is, and he can see us as blameless and holy so that we can dwell with him here today in our confession of him. So let's break into our small groups and discuss what y'all learned this week.